has great things in store for his people. Praise God. I love him so much. and He loves me even more. Amen. What an awesome God we serve. Let's all stand this morning. We'll call out to him. Ask his blessing upon our service. As we follow after him. As we submit ourselves to him and do his will. He blesses. Amen. He pours out blessings upon his people. But we've got to do things his way. We've got to go his direction. Amen. If we do that, we can expect great and mighty things from God. Praise God. Let's call out to him this morning, shall we? Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. I am delighted that you are here today with us. I am delighted to be in the presence of God. I rejoice in the God of my salvation. You are my God, my Lord, my Savior, my King, my Redeemer. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are my exceeding great reward. You are my all in all. Hallelujah, Jesus. We turn to you, Lord Jesus, as one body. We bind together as one in this place today, entering into the presence of Almighty God, seeking your face, seeking to hear your voice, to feel your touch, to spend time in your presence. Hallelujah, Jesus. You always have good gifts for your people. I am so thankful, Lord Jesus, for the things that you have in store for your people here today. We will receive of you good things, precious things, wondrous things. Hallelujah, Jesus, because you desire to give good gifts to your children. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your ministration here today. The ministration of the Holy Ghost, the presence of the Holy Ghost is here today. Hallelujah, Jesus. And where you are, all things are possible. Where you are is liberty. Hallelujah, Jesus. Release faith into this assembly today and set your people free here today. Free to serve you. Free to worship you. Free to believe in the promises of God. Hallelujah, Jesus. Free to move forward in your plan and in your purpose, both individually, corporately, here today. Lord Jesus, let your great and mighty name be glorified in our midst. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated today. Praise God. By way of review, at some point in every Christian's life, we grow up. At some point in every person's natural life, we grow up. Wouldn't it be nice if we could remain kids our whole lives? My wife and I argue about that. She thinks it would be awesome. And I'm like, I like determining my own bedtime. I like deciding where I'm going to go out to eat. (laughs) Of course, there's responsibilities with that too, right? But in any case, we got to grow up at some point. We transition from I need, me, my, I, from looking to get my needs met to looking to the cares and concerns of others. When I was a baby, I'm told, uh, I didn't care when my parents were asleep or when they were frustrated or busy. When I was hungry, I cried and screamed. I didn't even consider whether or not it was a good time for my parents. Never even crossed my little six-month-old mind. When I messed myself, I wanted it fixed. Now, right now, absolutely. Why is this still here? But I don't think like that anymore. Thank God. At some point in our walk with God, he will begin to wean us, as it were, and he'll start asking of us where before he was only giving. When I first came to the Lord, I said this before, it was always awesome. I opened the Word of God and things just poured out into my brain. And there was no cost. It was all free. Until it wasn't. And then he started asking things of me. I need you to do this. I need you to go here. I need you to sacrifice in this area or that area. And, uh, you know, there are Christians today that uh, they've been living for God 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and they still haven't seen.
seem to understand this, that sometimes we're required to sacrifice. Sometimes the Lord is going to ask things of us that we don't want to do. It's too hard. It's not convenient. It costs too much. But he's asking anyway. And at that point, of course, it's time to make a choice. Do I do what I want or do I do what Jesus wants? Do I keep this money for myself or do I give it to the work of God? Because that's what Jesus, I feel like Jesus is telling me to do. Do I stay here with my family and friends, Brother DeMuth, or do I move to Wisconsin? Like God wants me to. Where I end up in the future will be determined 100% by the choices I make today. And because tomorrow is so far away, well, I still have time to make better choices later. I'll just make good choices for myself now. And then later on, I'll start making better choices for the future. That never seems to work out. When Jesus began to switch on the crowd from giving to speaking things they didn't want to hear, the crowd turned and walked away. Whoa. I'm just here for the loaves and fishes. I'm just here to see the next miracle. And there are some people like that today. They'll go from revival service to revival service. Congratulating themselves on how spiritual they are. The disciples, however, they stayed. John six sixty seven through sixty nine says, Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Everyone else is. Is this too hard for you also? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? I love that. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. It's almost like he's saying, yeah, I, I kind of want to, but where am I going to go? I can't. You're the guy. You're the Messiah. You're my salvation. There's nowhere else I can go. And when Jesus starts asking hard things of us, how is our response? I don't want to do this, but what else am I going to do? You're God. You're my Savior. He's the one that we need to submit to. Our daily devotions. Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life, is the first of seven I am's saying, I am sayings in John's gospel. John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. John 10 and 7, I am the door. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, 1, I am the true vine. These seven statements serve a common purpose, to reveal Jesus' power and authority, as well as his deity by identifying himself as the I am of the Old Testament. Exodus 3.14, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you, the self-existent one. Amen. I am. That's all there is to it. That's all the explanation he seems to think we need. I'm present. I've always been present. I always will be present. Tell that to the children of Israel. Also to demonstrate that there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. We know later in the book of Acts chapter 4 verse 12, it stated, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That name is Jesus. The disciples understood these points at least to a point, And that is why they stayed. They knew it was to whom they were speaking with. 
They couldn't just walk away. What were they going to do afterward? Have you ever thought about that? I have. I'm not sure why, but I've thought about it. What if I walked away? Other people are walking away. What if I did? The thought horrifies me. It absolutely frightens me. What in the world would I do? Synonymous with that is, what would, what would I do if I missed the rapture? It fills me with dread. I can't. Yeah. I can't. I can't walk away. Day one. Jesus knew, well, I can. And I've got to be careful. And we have to be careful. Because given the right set of circumstances, anybody can walk away. What I mean is, I can't allow myself to get to the place where I want to, where I can. I can't, I can't allow that. I've got to stay close to Jesus Christ. I've got to guard against that. Day one, Jesus knew the motivations and the lusts of the crowd, that they were not aligned with his motivations. The story is told about uh, people that won a million dollar sweepstakes, but when contacted, they thought it was a prank. I probably would think the same thing. <clears throat> this is a scam. Yeah, okay. Okay, pal. Sounds good. Well, they finally got through to him. Christian skepticism regarding the power of God and God's desire and willingness to do wondrously in their behalf could very well end up disqualifying you from the answer God has reserved for you. If we will not believe that what God is telling us is true. We read all of these exceeding great and precious promises in the Word of God, and we stumble with them. This can't be true. This can't be possible. Not for me. Not now. Why not? There's a good question. Why not you? Why not? Why, why brother so-and-so instead of you? Why sister so-and-so instead of you? What do they have that you don't? Nothing. Nothing. They have nothing you don't have. They have the same Holy Ghost you have. They have the same relationship with God that you have. They have the same promises in the Word of God that you have. When witnessing and testifying... Of what God has done for you. Oh, I'm sorry, day two. But know of a surety that you are qualified to do so. You may not feel like it. That's fine. You don't need to feel anything. You just need to know. I was watching a uh, thing on worship the other day. Guy was a little bit eccentric, but uh, he made some good points. And uh, I'm sure this will tie in somehow, but... He was saying that, you know, a lot of churches today, they, they gear their worship services to go straight for the emotion. And they bypass the intellect. If you look at the old hymns, they are replete with doctrinal statements. They are chock full. They're, they're full of meat. They get here first. And from here, I start feeling something. But when I bypass this and go straight for this, we get into kind of a sloppy sentimentalism that's not good. It's not good, folks. I like songs with meat in them. I like songs with doctrinal statements in them. I like songs that talk about who Jesus is. Instead of one line over and over and over and over and over again. That's, that's just me. And I think I have good basis for it. But again, at this point, we'll just say that's my opinion. But in any case, feeling is irrelevant when facts come into play, 
The facts say I am qualified. I am qualified to witness and testify of what Jesus Christ has done for me. I am credentialed. I'm qualified. I'm trained. I'm equipped to witness to anyone. Jesus Christ. Amen. And so are you. Feelings aside, know, understand that you are qualified to witness to other people about what Jesus Christ has done for you. Day three, Jesus is continually trying to get us to see the gaping difference between the spiritual and the temporal, between the secular and the eternal. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. If we take that second part out, the statement still stands. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It just so happens that there's a blessing in store if we do. But if there wasn't, the command still stands. We've got to seek his kingdom first. And if that's going to cost me something, so be it. If advancing the kingdom of God means I need to sacrifice, then so be it. Why am I here? Why are any of us here? To get a job and make a bunch of money. Save for retirement. Why are we here, folks? We're here to advance the kingdom of God. By any means necessary. By any means he decrees. And if it costs me something, good. Good, it ought to cost me something. What did David say? I will not offer to the Lord anything that cost me nothing. It ought to cost me something. Because Jesus, he spent everything for me. And I always have to come back to that. What did Jesus do for me? What did he spend on my behalf? What did he sacrifice for me? Everything. He's not asking me to hang on a cross. He's not asking me to take 40 stripes. He's not asking me. To bear the full weight of God's wrath. All he's asking of me is a little bit of time. Maybe a little bit of money. So be it. Take time to examine the tasks you do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. How many of those are eternity focused? How many of those invest into the kingdom of God? Don't answer. Just think about it. I'm thinking about it. Not liking what I see. Day four. Jesus wasn't contradicting the Old Testament when he said to drink his blood and eat his flesh. What he was saying is that he is the only sustenance that leads to eternal life and salvation. And again, the people who heard him say those words would have understood his meaning if they were listening. If they were listening. There's an account of George Beverly Shea. Excellent singer, I guess. Had an opportunity to go out into the world and make a ton of money. But he felt like God didn't want him to do that, so he didn't. And the account said that uh, while he was seeking God over it, he felt like God was silent. But I have to ask, was God truly silent when he was trying to decide between a great paying secular career and using his gift for God? Maybe he was silent because that question was already answered. That's a question that's already been answered in Scripture. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, is it wrong for me to use my talents to make money? I hope not. We all have or are.
But where's my focus? Where's my heart? How do I identify? I need to use my gifts first and foremost for the kingdom of God. Day five, the fickleness of the crowd. I was made aware of this fact a very long time ago, that the crowd is fickle, folks. You'll have their praise one minute, and they'll be shouting, crucify him the next. Another encouragement in my mind to endure to the end. Don't look for a quick fix or a quick way out of difficult times. And that's a hard saying, isn't it? Because our first reaction, our first response, when I touch the hot stove, is to reflexively pull away. It's kind of counterintuitive to ask me to keep my hand there for a little bit. But that seems like that's exactly what God is asking of us, isn't it? Stay in the fire. Stay in the storm. I can't let you out yet. Grow through the trial. Grow through the difficult time. God is getting you ready for something huge. God is preparing you for something He wants to do in your life. So stick it out. Endure to the end. See what God has in store. Amen. Our scripture text for our lesson today is found in John chapter 1. We'll read the first 14 verses. Familiar passage of scripture to many of us. Our lesson is entitled, The Word Made Flesh. The Word Made Flesh. John 1, starting with verse 1, states this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Symbols can convey powerful truths. Sometimes as individuals' words and actions can become so intertwined with a symbol that the individual represents the idea or action as much or more than the original symbol. In the 20th century, perhaps no one illustrates this better than Adolf Hitler. The German Nazi party came into existence in 1920 and chose the swastika as their symbol. The swastika had been used across an array of religions and cultures to convey a range of ideas for thousands of years prior to 1920. Do you guys know that? I discovered that relatively recently, and it blew blew me away. There's pictures of the swastika going back ancient times. The Nazis used the swastika to represent what they saw as the racial purity of the German people. It became, for them, a symbol of national and cultural pride. Soon German soldiers were goose-stepping past swastika and blazing banners while ordinary citizens chanted their allegiance to German Fuhrer and Nazi party leader Adolf Hitler. To the rest of the world, however, the swastika became a symbol of hatred and state-sponsored genocide, especially following the defeat of Germany in World War II and the uncovering of the atrocities the Nazis wreaked on the world. Most citizens in the West recoil at the sight of a swastika, and its display is banned in present-day Germany. Hitler himself has come to serve as a stand-in for the swastika and the evils of Nazi Germany. Even the fascist dictator's name now serves as a byword for evil and oppression. In the U.S., 
Those who wish to disparage political opponents sometimes do so by labeling them Hitler. Guys have never heard that before, right? Distaste for Hitler even transformed American fashion. In the 1930s, many men, including the popular comedian Charlie Chaplin, sported what was commonly called a toothbrush mustache. Hitler also wore his facial hair in this style. Eventually, the toothbrush mustache became so associated with the German leader that most American men shaved their upper lip clean. Today, many associate the toothbrush mustache with Adolf Hitler. Symbols also play a role in Christianity. The most familiar symbol associated with Christianity is the cross. But even the term Christian is a symbol of sorts. The first recorded use of the term in Scripture is found in Acts 11.26, where Luke noted, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Friends, neighbors, and associates saw striking similarities between the lifestyles of the first believers and Jesus Christ, that society labeled them Christians, or Christ-like. Modern Christians frequently display the cross in their homes or churches, but our witness is much more powerful and effective when we embody Jesus in our actions attitude, and spirit. In this manner, we bear witness of Jesus and announce his coming kingdom, just as John the Baptist did in the first century. We become living symbols of Jesus' power and authority. His light will shine through us into a dark world, and his glory will be revealed. Praise God. So, in the beginning is where John 1-1 starts. It's the same thing that starts in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. John, acquainted with that verse, opens with John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He added in John 1.3, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The writer of Hebrews expresses it this way. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-3. through 3. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high." God, who spoke everything into existence at the beginning of time, has shared with us his message of grace and truth through the person of Jesus Christ. Praise God. We see all through history, all through biblical history, the progression of God's plan of salvation. Before there was ever a need, when Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, After their fall, where God instituted a plan whereby they could still approach unto a holy and a righteous God. It would take the shedding of blood. Going through Abraham, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant that was established between him and God. Moving on from there to the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, where all these things were codified and instituted into the Mosaic law. The ceremonial, the civil law, the... Uh, the moral law. Everything was codified and written down on tables of stone. Pointing to a day where none of that would be necessary. Where it would all be finally fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The Greek term that John used that we translate as word is logos. David K. Bernard notes in his book The Oneness of God and I quote, In Greek usage, logos can mean the expression or plan as it exists in the mind of the proclaimer, as a play in the mind of a playwright, or it can mean the thought as uttered or otherwise physically expressed as a play that's actually enacted on stage, unquote. God, knowing the end from the beginning that Adam and Eve would eventually fall into sin, they would rebel against the commandment of God. God, knowing that something would need to be set in place, after the fact, instituted a plan for the salvation of humanity. Jesus lived that plan out 
by dying on a cross for our sins and rising from the dead, securing our deliverance and our salvation. This logos or plan was in the mind of God from the very beginning. Amen. John 1, 2, the same was in the beginning with God. That logos. Revelation 13, 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In the mind of God, it had already happened. Amen. As an aside, this brings out an interesting point. God knowing the end from the beginning, that salvation would become necessary. That brings up a couple questions, maybe. First of all, is that some kind of predestination? Since God knew it was going to happen, was it preordained? Did it have to happen? When God lays out prophecies in the Bible, are those things that have to happen? Did did Judas have to betray Jesus? That was prophesied. There are some that say, well, he didn't have a choice. He had to because that's what God had ordained. He was predestined to do that. Or is it simply God telling us what he knows is going to happen? The choices that he knows people are going to make. I would say it's the latter. Predestination is not a thing, folks. It's not, unless you consider the church as a whole. The church is predestined. The church will go up in the rapture. The church will make it. The church will be successful and victorious. So if you want to be predestinated toward that end, stay in the church. Stay a part of the body of Christ. Otherwise, if I can say it this way, you take your life in your own hands. I don't know how else to say it. Stay in the church. The church is predestined. But you and I are not. We have free moral agency, and our choices matter. God will honor the choices that we make. John makes it clear that the Logos was not separate from God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word was God. Now it also says the Word was with God. What do we do with that? The Word was with God. It was in the mind of God. The Logos, the Word. He was the same God that Genesis credits with all of creation. John 1, 3. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. God spoke life into existence in Genesis 1. He spoke all life into existence. Except for us, He formed us, breathed into our nostrils. Jesus states in John 6, 63, It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. The words of Jesus Christ are life. And this is why uh, I find it so fascinating that he died. That had to have been a, a conscious choice. That had to have been a conscious decision by God to lay down his life. Because it couldn't have happened any other way. He is life, folks. He is life. He is the embodiment of life. Death can't touch him. It can't. He would have had to make a conscious choice to lay it down himself. And as the Bible states, when he was ready, he picked it right back up. Nobody resurrected him. He picked it back up himself. Jesus demonstrates this this idea, this fact that he is life through his many healings. And most dramatically in raising Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead three days. He was starting to decay. 
And at the word of Jesus, that was all reversed. And life filled him again. That is impossible with us. Believe me, people have tried. People have tried to create life in the laboratory. If they tweak the settings, and if they cheat a lot, they can get some amino acids. That is a long way away from life. From there you need proteins. From proteins you need DNA, RNA, and all the other mechanisms. It's, it doesn't work. But it does with God. Life only comes from God. Light being necessary for all life, both physical and spiritual. Uh, this is stated in Genesis 1-3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. We understand the light of the sun. Photosynthesis creates uh, oxygen, which we all love to breathe. I do. I like a little oxygen every now and again. It helps. <clears throat> John 1.4 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus is both life and light. This light becomes important. Obviously, the physical light is, is important. We understand all that. But the spiritual light is so much more important. John eight twelve says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Matthew four sixteen says, The people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, Light is sprung up. John 1, 9, that is the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is spiritual light, that light being revelation of truth. When we're born, folks, we are born into darkness. We are spiritually blind, deaf, and dumb. We're spiritually dead, actually. There is no possible way for us to understand spiritual truth. It's not put into us. We cannot approach a holy and a righteous God by ourselves. We don't have the capability. We are dead spiritually. That's how all of us are born. But Jesus comes and He illuminates and He shines light into our darkness. He shines the light of truth into our darkness. The world would have us believe that we are in darkness. We are in ignorance. And they have the light of scientific truth. I say it's the exact opposite. More and more they are ignorant. And it is the biblical Christian who has truth, who has light illuminated to us. We didn't discover it. We couldn't have found it if we tried. But God came and he shone his light upon us. And he illuminated the truth into us. Amen. He sought me and found me. I thought for a long time that I was looking for him. I was trying to find him. You under here? Where yet? Not at all. He was leading me to himself. And that's how it always works. We're not looking for him. He's looking for us. We didn't find him. He found us. I didn't discover truth. He showed it to me. Praise God. And that's how it works every single time. Jesus is so awesome. Jesus states that he is spiritual light, illuminating the way before us and revealing truths to us that have previously been hid. <clears throat> because we were in darkness. We can't see anything until the light is turned on. Matthew 13, 35, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. When I was 
still seeking for the Holy Ghost, I often thought it would be so much nicer if I were still in the Old Testament, where all I would have to do is climb a mountain, and then I could get into the presence of God. I can do that. I can't seem to get the Holy Ghost. But folks, this, this covenant that we're in today is infinitely better. It's infinitely better. It's so much more powerful. <clears throat> these things that were secret, these things that the prophets, they couldn't see. We live these things. They're a part of our lives. It's who we are. Jesus said at one point, I'm going to misquote it, but the prophets and the wise men, they died not seeing and hearing what you guys are seeing and hearing. They wanted to, but they couldn't. It wasn't for them. It's for you and it's for me today. What a privilege, what a blessing that we have today. I know when we look out in the world today, it's, it's very frustrating and chaotic and, and how is all of this even happening? But consider the, the time period that we're in, biblically speaking. This dispensation, we have the fullest revelation of who God is in Jesus Christ. We have His Spirit living and dwelling in us. We are the tabernacles of the Most Holy God. The Most High God dwells in us. He's given us His name. I cannot not be blown away by that. Amen. John 1, 7 and 8 says, The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through Him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Like John the Baptist, we are also called to bear witness of that light. We have the same commission to bear witness of the light. We are not that light. I think we all understand that. But we are called, we are sent to bear witness of that light, that true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Lighteth every man that cometh into the world? Well, then how come everybody doesn't serve God? How come everybody doesn't have truth? Everybody in the world knows that there is a God. The Bible states that. Everybody in the world has been given revelation that God exists. They'll deny it. They will say it's not true. They will be willfully ignorant of certain things. But Romans 1, 19 and 20 states very plainly, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath sowed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. All one needs to do is look at God's creation. And God's creation testifies generally that He exists. If you would use any common sense at all, you would understand that there has to be a Creator. The design elements that are built into His creation alone stand as testament that there is a Creator, that there is a mind behind this. In modern science, everything points to a Creator. You've got to go to some pretty ridiculous lengths to convince people, well, no, this can be explained by this convoluted long string of stuff. And in the end, you look at a DNA molecule and you see there's a lot of information in there. Where did that come from? There's actually a four-letter alphabet built into the DNA molecule. It's a language, folks. Where does language come from? 
a mind. Exactly. But they can't accept that. They have to block that out. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Satan is doing his level best to blind the hearts and minds of people in this city, at our workplace, in our families, that God doesn't exist, that this gospel is fake, it's false. It's just another religion, it's just another book. But it is our job, it's our privilege, it's our responsibility to shine that light, to testify of that light unto them. To help them to see. To testify of the one who could open their eyes. Who could unstop their deaf ears. Who can give them understanding. That they might see, and that they might hear, and that they might understand, and that they would be converted. When we speak Jesus, we speak light, and we speak life. Matthew 7, 1 and 2 says, After six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. 9.32 adds, But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake they saw his glory, and the two men that stood with him. They saw Jesus transfigured before them, and they saw the glory of God upon him. Many years later, John, who was there present during the the transfiguration of Jesus, was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, now John the Revelator. And he writes this in chapter 21 and verse 23 of the book of Revelation. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. John had seen God's glory on a mountaintop, and now he sees it illuminating an entire city. The city of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 again. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are invited to witness God's glory in Jesus Christ and to testify of his glory to others. And this is what I'm talking about. What a privilege we have in this dispensation. What an honor we've been been given to enter into this particular covenant with God. That we can enter into the very throne room of the Almighty. That place where the high priest could only go one time a year. We can go any time we want, any time we desire, into the physical presence of God, the direct presence of God. And we can experience His glory. We beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We are invited to do that and to testify of his glory to others. Many of Jesus' contemporaries, though, could not see his glory. That's prophesied in Isaiah 53, in verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Matthew 13:55 tells it pointedly. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joses and Simon and Judas? Aren't they with us today? John 1.11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Because of this, because they rejected who he was, they rejected his ministry. Eventually, the leaders of his own nation conspired with the Gentile rulers, to crucify him. Even his closest followers temporarily forgot the glory they'd witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration and abandoned Jesus in his hour of greatest need. Peter, of all people, 
denied him three times. The rock. Matthew 10, 24 and 25 states this. Maybe a promise, maybe a warning. Jesus says this. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Jesus warns us here that we, his followers, are going to get the same treatment he got. Expect it, folks. It's only right. It's only right that we follow Jesus here as well. I only want to follow him up to the mountaintop. I only want to follow him to see the transfiguration. I'll follow him around when he's doing the miracles. Thank you. No one wants to follow him to Calvary. No one wants to follow him to the trial. it is for that very purpose that he was come. That is exactly why he came. He didn't come for the the miracles. He didn't come for the Mount of Transfiguration. He came to die. That's why he came. And I have to ask us again, why are we here today? What is our purpose? What's our purpose in salvation? What's our purpose in redemption? Why did God save me? So he could bless me. He does bless me. I think he he desires and and he loves to bless his people. I believe that with all my heart. That's That's not my primary purpose for salvation. That's a tertiary thing. That's something on the side, folks. I'm thankful for it. That's not why he saved me. He saved me so I could serve him. He saved me so I could have fellowship with him, so I could become like him, so I could demonstrate him to this world, so I could carry out his mission. And you have the same purpose. So you could carry out the mission that he left off when he was resurrected and and ascended to heaven. He left his body here on earth, that's you and me, to finish the mission that he started, to seek and to save that which was lost. And if necessary, to give our lives as a ransom for many. Amen. I know that doesn't preach very well. But folks, as I see the world today, as I consider the potential for persecution in this country, I have to come to the conclusion that that is a possibility in my life, that I will be called to lay my life down for Jesus. Now, what will I do in that moment? I don't know. I pray that I will do the right thing. I'm going to seek God for strength for that. I want to do the right thing, but so did Peter. And he denied him three times. I don't know what I'm going to do in the moment of truth. I pray. I pray I'll be faithful unto the end unto the end. Although many people rejected him then and do reject him today, there are many who do not. Thank God. John 1 and 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that, are, that believe on his name. The transformative power is given to all those who experience salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus later described this new birth experience as being born of water and of the Spirit. John 3, 5 says, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's how Jesus describes it later on. John concluded his account of the life of Jesus by explaining what his purpose for writing was. If we look at John 20 and 31, But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name.
That's the crux of the matter, folks. Salvation in His name. Everything else is awesome. Everything else is wondrous and glorious. But if I'm not saved, none of it, none, nothing else matters. None of, it, none of it would matter. He can give me all the money and all the riches and all the fame and all the glory in the whole world. You can make me truly happy in this life, whatever that would mean for me. But if I don't have Jesus, if at the end of it all, I lose out forever, that just sounds like a bad deal to me. We take on the family name, the name of Jesus in baptism, Acts 2.38. When we take on Christ's name in baptism, we are raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father so we can walk in newness of life, found in Romans 6 and 4. That life comes through the infilling of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 8 and 10, 8 through 10. When we are filled with the Holy Ghost, we become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. And as family members, we eventually will inherit a share in Christ's glory, Romans 8, 17 and 18. Can you imagine? When he found me, I was a long ways off. When he found me, I had nothing to offer him. But now I read stuff like this. I'm a joint heir with Christ. What in the world? I am so thankful. I am so thankful that one day Jesus revealed himself to me in truth. Prior to the birth of Jesus, Israel's faith had been defined by the law of Moses. Their history was essentially the testimony of their collective failure to live up to the demands of the Mosaic law. In a nutshell, that's the the bulk of the Old Testament. Their failure to live up to the law. Even those who strictly adhered to the law's commands often missed the point of why it was given in the first place. Jesus rebuked him and said, These things you ought to have done and not to have left the others undone. Justice, mercy, faith. You should have practiced that. That's the heart of the law. But they missed it. The law revealed our sinfulness. But Jesus reveals God's grace. John 1 and 14 says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Dwelt among us is literally tabernacled among us. It was always God's desire to dwell with his people. We see that in uh, in the story of Adam and Eve. We see that in the in the story of, of the Exodus. The position of the tabernacle was directly in the center of the camp. Accessible to his people. He meets with his people. He dwells with his people. That's his desire. That's his plan. The gulf of sin now having been bridged by Calvary. He can tabernacle among us as he desires. Not only with us, but in us. Praise God. We are privileged to show others the grace we've received from Jesus through our choices and through our actions. 1 Corinthians 4, 12 and 13 says, labor And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. 1 Peter 2 and 23 parallels that with Jesus. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. We are never more like Jesus than when we show grace to those who deserve it the least. Jesus forgave those who pierced his hands and feet. Jesus forgave those who whipped him to a bloody pulp and beat his face to a bloody pulp. Jesus forgave those people that were mocking him while he hung on the cross. And he forgave you, and he forgave me. And he'll forgive anyone who desires salvation. Amen. What a privilege we have today to demonstrate Jesus Christ, his grace, and his truth 
to this world. Amen. God bless you. Let's all stand today. Lord Jesus, what a privilege it is to serve you. What a high honor it is to be called the Son of the Most High God. What a great what a great honor you've given us, Lord Jesus, to call us your, your people, to call us your son, that you would identify yourself with us, that your desire is to dwell with us. Hallelujah, Jesus. What, a, what an awesome God we serve. What an awesome salvation you've given unto us. These exceeding great and precious promises, Lord Jesus, help us to continue to stand on them. But, Lord, help us to not forget who we are in you. Help us to not forget your desire in us that you saved us for a reason. You saved us for a purpose. Help us to be about our Father's business, I pray. I pray, 